I wonder if you've ever felt that you were running out of time. Maybe in the last few weeks, maybe today. I looked and the news was kind enough to let me know Target and Walmart are still open, so I have a few more hours before I can finish my Christmas shopping. In all seriousness, so even a few weeks ago, I did look and I started calculating, well, if I mail it today, most of my family lives in other states. What's the last possible day I can shop and then it get there on time? And it's not as though Christmas sneaks up on me. I know where it's coming. It's on the calendar. But I still feel that all the time. Maybe you do as well. And, and I look, and over the last probably, I would even say a couple of years, it's not just the desperation of time that we feel as Christmas is approaching, but I hear so many questions, so many people are concerned with the end of our time as the church and what's going to happen next and is Christ returning? Is it today he's going to return? Is it next year? And I'm all the YouTubes and the TikToks and all the videos that are talking about prophecy. Well, the good news is he will return. Bad news is I can't tell you when, although maybe we'll find out some hints today, but I can look and say, why did Jesus come when he did? Have you ever wondered that? Why did it take so many thousands of years for Jesus to be born? Why was he born when he was? Why not today when we could spread his message through Google and any other type of medium that we have? Why was he born when he was? Well, we're going to look at that. In fact, we're going to look at Galatians 4.4, be where we start, 4 and 5. Paul writes in his letter to the Galatians, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Anybody who places their faith in Jesus Christ is not just saved for all of eternity, but you were literally Christ or God's child. You were his son or daughter from that point forward. People have been waiting for this event for literally thousands of years. And looking at this, I think a quote by uh, Walter Hansen, speaks of it very well. It says, God's plan of salvation cannot be understood merely in static terms as a logical system of ideas. Revelation, God, human nature, Christ, salvation, church, God's, all of this is part of God's redemptive work. But the point here that he makes in the second sentence, God's redemptive work must be understood in the framework of his actions in history. Everything we read in Scripture happened to real people at a real point in time and pointed either towards Jesus or back towards Jesus. But either way, it points towards Jesus. Again, people knew this, and they were waiting for it for thousands of years. We think the first mention in Christian theology of the gospel or the salvation message occurs in Genesis 3.15. Over time, God reveals more of his message, giving more of the story to us so that we can understand what he's doing in history. The language used in Genesis 4 actually indicates that Eve thought that Cain was the Messiah. We don't have time to go into the linguistics of that, but trust me, it's there. Hundreds of years later, Lamech thought that Noah was the one who would give rest from the curse. In fact, Noah's name is literally the one who will give us rest. He thought that he was possibly the Messiah. After the flood, God would eventually narrow the redemptive line or the line to Abraham and his lineage. We would have over 400 years pass, and 
they would go into slavery. But in that promise to Abram, God issues three key points. And these are important for you to remember when you look at Scripture. The easy way to remember it is just three words, land, seed, and blessing. But what he's saying there is, first, that God promises Abraham he'll have many offspring. That's already happened. There's Jews throughout the known world. Second, he will rule over a large portion of the ancient Near East. And third, one of his heirs will be the Messiah and as such be a blessing to the whole world. Those two aspects have yet to occur. Though we think they literally will happen in the future. And making this covenant with Abraham, God narrows the promise that the Messiah will have to come through the Hebrew people or Jews. After they're sent into captivity, God would eventually narrow his revelation of the Messiah even further in the Davidic covenant. And as part of that, he narrows it now that it has to come from the tribe of Judah or the line of David. When he issues these various proclamations or revelations to Moses, Moses records the first five books in roughly around 1400 B.C. And I say that just to give you a sense of the timeline. Not that you have to memorize that date or anything like that. But he records the first five books and he sets up a way that God expects to be worshipped and honored by his people. In fact, he also outlines what will happen to his people if they fail to worship him or fail to honor him the way that they're supposed to. If you want to read that section, it's in Genesis 28. And it just talks about this progressive nature of discipline that God puts his people through. Now, we don't have time to go into that today, but that happens repetitively in the Old Testament. We see it cycle over and over in the book of Judges, and it will eventually culminate in the, both the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities. God would initially narrow it to David, and God also lets David know that even if his heirs or his children or his children's children or his grandchildren aren't faithful, that God's still going to be faithful to his promise. And again, that's going to be fairly important in what we look at today. At this point in history, the Hebrew people understand, or they're looking for three key aspects when they look at the Messiah. Because they have all these covenants, and I mean the time that Paul is writing in Galatians. But first, he must fulfill all three blessings listed in the Abrahamic covenant. Second, he must fulfill the Mosaic law in its perfect worship and service to God. He did that. He never sinned. He was spotless or sinless when he went to the cross. But he also honored God the Father in all that he did throughout all of human history. Third, he must rule as king and be from the tribe of Judah. He fulfills being from the tribe of Judah when he's born in Bethlehem. But, actually when he's born to Mary, he would, he would fulfill Judah. But he doesn't rule as king, not in a literal sense, not yet. It's only logical for us to ask why God didn't send the Messiah earlier. And again, as we've noted, in just a few instances, the Hebrew people or humanity in general is also asking that question. Is it now the Messiah is going to come? Is it now the Messiah is going to come? How often does it happen in Christian culture today? The end of times is today. The end of times is today. It's true that one of us is going to be right. One of us is going to have it nailed on the rapture. I don't know when it's going to occur. Someone asked me this question earlier, and all that I said, well, I could tell you it's in the fullness of time. But God's timing is perfect. Paul is showing how Jesus' birth was the fulfillment of prophecy. And it wasn't only the fulfillment of prophecy. It happened at the perfect time. 
See, when Paul writes this letter, the Jews had been in oppression or captivity for well over 500 years. One of the main hurdles for Jews to accept Jesus as the Messiah was that he didn't bring in all of these prophecies. If you recall, when he's resurrected, one of the first things the disciples asked Jesus, is it now that you're going to bring about the kingdom? They're constantly looking for this kingdom aspect of what Jesus is supposed to do in their lives. The fulfillment of these prophecies is not lost to the Jewish people. It's simply delayed based on their rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. It will eventually happen. Now, they understand a portion of this even in their own writings. We're going to look at a section of the Talmud. The Talmud is simply a Jewish commentary that was written thousands of years ago by the rabbis. It is not inspired. It's not the same as Scripture. In fact, they're going to get a few things wrong in the quote that I'm about to show you. But what it does show us is how they're understanding history. The same way that if we were to read a history book or some commentaries on the Bible today, they're not all perfect. In Sanhedrin, that's simply one book of the Talmud, verses 97a and b, it says, It was taught in the school of Eliyahu that the world is to exist for 6,000 years. In the first 2,000 years, there was desolation. For the 2,000 years, the Torah flourished. And the next 2,000 years is the Messianic age. But through our many inequities, all of these years have been lost. Now, of course, Earth's around more than 6,000 years. They don't have the exact timing correct. But they do understand that it's through their sin that the Messiah didn't come to rule. So this is not inspired, but in their own mindset, they understand that their sin prevented them from having the blessings that were promised in the Mosaic Covenant. Now, we can look at this and we can say, well, why do they understand this? However, this still doesn't tell us why God waited all these thousands of years. Paul does use uh, the term in this verse. It's a Greek term. The, the phrase is just to pleroma, to chrono. It just means in the fullness of time. This word fullness or pleroma is significant. Again, I don't plan to give you a Greek lesson this morning. It simply means that it was in the perfect or best time possible. It's frequently found in the passive sense, indicating the fulfillment of the perfect time of the now. But in order to fully answer the question as to why this is the fullness of time, we have to look back hundreds and hundreds of years earlier. See, God had given Nebuchadnezzar a prophetic dream on how he would move across history to prepare for the Messiah. One thing we have to understand when we look back at, have you ever just taken some time, maybe a moment, maybe New Year's Eve, you look back on the course of the last year, or you look back over the course of your life, well, hindsight's always 2020. We can easily see decisions we should have made one way or the other. We can understand God's purpose one way or the other, maybe how he was protecting us. But it's rarely that way in the moment. Frequently, we're only able to take one more step in God's plan for our lives. I've heard it says that God gives us a flashlight, not a floodlight for the future. He gives us that next step that we're supposed to take. Again, all of Israel at the writing of Paul's letter was under oppression for about 500 years. A few weeks ago, Randall Price was here and he spoke about archaeology and apologetics. If you missed that, le that lesson, I apologize. It was phenomenal. Hopefully we're going to be able to bring him back at some point. But looking at these, we frequently want to say, is there an archaeological piece of evidence? And some of the greatest archaeology that we have or some of the greatest evidence is actually writings that we're able to look and see what's recorded 
And this is something that we can look back in, in history and see what's happening. Some of the better ones or bigger ones is there's actually a Sennacherib. It's called Sennacherib's Prism. It's a stone structure that actually records the siege of Jerusalem by the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire conquers the northern ten tribes in 722 B.C. You do not have to memorize all these dates. I love history, but don't feel that you have to. We're not going to quiz you on these later. But the southern tribes go into captivity in three deportations, roughly between 597 and 581 B.C. At this point, you're probably saying, hey, I showed up to church service. It's Christmas Eve. Why are we getting a history lesson? What this is going to show us is how God is moving throughout history. Because not only was he faithful in what he had promised to the Hebrew people, by knowing that, we can know that he's faithful in what he promised to us, coming back to receive us. And so what we're doing is fortifying our faith or building a structure that we can look back at Scripture and understand what God is doing more. See, we read verses like Galatians 4.4, and we think, well, I'll just gloss over that. There's a bigger point to Galatians, that it's faith alone. Let me tell you this with all sincerity. God doesn't enter filler verses in Scripture. There's not a random verse that he needed to fill out the text. Every verse in Scripture matters. And that's why we at this church and John preaches exegetically, because it's important for us to understand how God is going through Scripture line by line and verse by verse. These deportations create a real promise, or excuse me, a real problem for Israel. If they're in captivity, if they're oppressed by a foreign nation, how is God going to bring about the fulfillment of his promises or covenants to Israel? Do you imagine living in that time and saying, I, don't, I just don't see a way there's a king? I don't see there's a way that God can correct all the problems that we have in society. I don't see how he can make these various empires get along. I don't see how he can proclaim his message that everybody would see him. I don't see how he could send his message out in a way that everyone would understand. See the parallels? One thing we need to understand is just because it's not easy for us to see how God can accomplish something by human means, the fulfillment of prophecy doesn't rely on our understanding but the power of God to fulfill that prophecy. And he can do things that are unfathomable in our own minds. And this is what we look forward to in history. When, while in Babylon, God gives a vision to Nebuchadnezzar in order to encourage the Jews and let them know he's still in control of history. In Daniel chapter 2, the dream of Nebuchadnezzar is recorded and interpreted. During the first 13 verses, it records the fact that Nebuchadnezzar had a disturbing, repetitive dream, and his wise men were not able to interpret that dream. I've never had repetitive dreams, but I've had dreams that were so vivid that they stuck with me throughout the day. They made me think of something, recall either someone, maybe childhood friends or circumstances, but imagine having that same vivid dream over and over and over, night after night after night. If you read the text, and we're not going to do that right now just in the sense of time, but it actually calls them wise men or magi. Again, we're not going to go to all this, but I'll give you a hint. If you look at this text, it will also give you a hint as to where and who the wise men were that visited Jesus. Because wise men in that time weren't wise men as we think of it. They were actually these astrologers, sorcerers, 
necromancers and cantors. And what they would do if you came to them, it was a mind game they played. They would say, well, you tell me your dream, and then I'll tell you the interpretation. You tell me what you thought, and I'll tell you what it means. And what they did was they'd go back in archival records and look at similar things. Nebuchadnezzar knows this. And he says, no, if you're a real prophet, if you really speak for God, I don't need to tell you my dream. You'll know what my dream is, and then you can tell me its interpretation. This goes on for quite a while, and they're not able to do it. In fact, time's running out on them. He issues a death sentence. He says, I'm going to kill all of you because you're, you're failing. You're worthless. Daniel's not in the court at this time, but word gets back to him. And he approaches Nebuchadnezzar and says, will you give me some time to pray? And this is important because when we look at spirituality, Nebuchadnezzar, or excuse me, Daniel doesn't say, it's my power that can interpret the dream. He doesn't say, it's my gifting that can give you this prophecy. He doesn't say, it's me that can tell you what you should do. He specifically points to God. In fact, he says, I can't even make God do it. I have to ask God to allow me to do it. And this is important because quite frequently in today's society, people will tell you, in fact, I'll, I'll tell you this. Did you know the most prevalent spiritual gift? Discernment. People can always tell you what you should do in your life. So many people have it. Obviously, that's a joke, but it's, it, people, it, it's something that we do need to keep in mind. Scripture, our relationship is with God. It is not with humanity to tell us what God has for our lives. So we can have guides. We can have people we look up to. We can have mentors. All of that's legitimate. But ultimately, when you place your faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, your relationship is with God the Father. And that's the most important thing. While, while uh, Daniel goes over the first 13 verses, it records the fact that uh, Nebuchadnezzar was having this dream. He prays to God, and he's able to reveal the meaning of the dream to him. In verse 2, uh, verses 37 and 38 he tells Nebuchadnezzar what his dream is. He says, You, O king, are the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the breasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them. You are the head of gold. At this point, Nebuchadnezzar is liking this dream. He's loving this interpretation. Just think about it. What do most people love to hear most? about themselves. Most people are narcissistic to some degree. They want to talk about themselves. They want to hear about themselves. They want to hear about how great they are. Nebuchadnezzar's no different. He thinks, this is great. God loves me. He's going to let me rule over everything. It goes on and talks about two other parts of the statue. It says, after, excuse me, after you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to you, then another third kingdom of bronze will rule over all the earth. This is essentially what the statue looks like. The head of gold is Babylon from 605 to 539 B.C. Medo-Persia would conquer Babylon in 539-332 B.C. with the torso of silver or the arms and shoulders. The bronze would be Greece, 332 to 63 B.C. and Rome from 63 to 476 A.D. Again, you don't have to memorize this date. I just wanted you to have a visual representation of the statue that he looks at. The, the sub subsequent kingdoms are Persia, Greece, and Rome. And we will see how God is going to use those kingdoms to prepare for the fullness of time 
for the Messiah. As we develop our reading of our Bible, we understand that God doesn't issue prophecy simply so he can tell you that he knows what's happening tomorrow. If that was the only point of issuing prophecy, he could have stopped at any one of the prophecies and said, see, I can predict the future. There's probably something a little bit more important to it, but it takes us digging into Scripture. I remember President Bush had a quote. I don't remember the full context of it, but he said, the subtle bigotry of low expectations. And I've always thought about that when I approach Scripture. Do I have low expectations in looking at the text and that it's something simple? Or do I understand there's something deeper there that I can research and understand how God is moving throughout history to accomplish salvation? I think there's something deeper. We will look at God illustrating these various kingdoms, but going back even further, the Assyrians and the Babylonians had two different methods of controlling the people that they conquered. First, the the Assyrians would actually deport people, and they would get them to intermarry. They would take people of varying cultures and mix them together. The best way to tell you this is think of if someone conquered America and they said, we're going to move people from Oklahoma to Texas, people from Texas to Oklahoma. We're going to get them to intermarry. And by the way, we're also going to sprinkle in maybe some people from California or New York. And they would become the single, and they would all be called Texans, no longer the true Texans. Sound a little weird? That's how the Hebrew people felt. In fact, the Assyrian conquering of the ten tribes is how we get Samaritans. If you read the story of the Samaritan woman, it's directly related back to this and why she tells Jesus that Jews won't interact with her because they think she's impure. She's not of the pure race of the Hebrew people. Again, just a little snippet in the sidebar of history. But the Babylonians are a little bit different. They don't intermix people. What they do is they deport the best and the brightest. You think of the people that were engineers, the people that were scientists, the royalty, and they indoctrinate them in Babylonian culture. This is what happens to Daniel. This is why he's given the best food. This is why he's given a new name. They want him to become Babylonian. And this is what they would do. Now, in this deportation, they think they're doing what's best for their kingdom. They don't understand that they're actually furthering the purpose of God. Let's go back a little bit to that law that Moses recorded. Did he say that God's choosing you because you're such a great tribe? Did he tell the Hebrew people, you're being chosen by God just so he can bless you because he loves you so much? Or did he give them a purpose? Did he tell them they were being chosen for a reason? Was there something they were supposed to do with the message? Did he tell them, hey, just hang out with the ten tribes that you know? In fact, if you don't like the other ten tribes, just hang out with your tribe. Your, I mean tribe, not the domination, I'm sorry. But you see this, they turned inward. They didn't carry the message forward. And when they didn't do it willingly, God forced them to do it through these deportations. Both Josephus and Philo record in numerous locations in history that Jews would spread throughout the Mediterranean. There's Jews all the way on the other side of the Euphrates as far as Greece. And, in fact, in Jeremiah, we see that they would actually go into Egypt. In Jeremiah 43, verses 6 through 7, it says, The men and women, the children, the kings and daughters, and every person that Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, had left with Gedaliah, the son of Ahakam, the grandson of Shaphan, together with Jeremiah the prophet 
and Baruch and the sons of Neriah. And they entered the land of Egypt, so they did not obey the voice of the Lord, and went in as far as Tapanhes. They failed to do it on their own. God uses these deportations to spread the word of the Messiah throughout the known world. The Babylonians were conquered by the Medo-Persians in 539 B.C., and the Persians would control people a little bit differently. They wanted to be seen as liberators. They would allow people to go back to their region and worship their gods. We have to understand in the ancient Near East, they thought gods were regional. They didn't have a concept that there was one universal god over all gods. Only the Hebrew people had that concept. Persians would allow them to go back, and hopefully they would be honoring to the Persians since they let them return to their land. This is also recorded in Scripture. In Ezra, verses 1 through 3, it says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put in his writing saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord of the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is God who is in Jerusalem. This gives people a sense a somewhat of religious freedom. They're able to worship what God they want throughout the whole Persian Empire. This is the first step of God moving forward in history. After that, both uh, Greece and Rome would learn from this religious freedom, and they would maintain that throughout their empires. In 332 B.C., Alexander the Great conquers the Persian Empire. And while the Greeks were proficient at war, what they loved more than anything else was the study of philosophy. In fact, Luke records this in Acts chapter 17, verse 21. It says, Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling and hearing something new. This is significant, and we miss this, because the Greek language is centered and created around the study of philosophical or theological thought. In fact, if I asked you to name five philosophers in history, I bet you three of them would be rooted in the Greek Empire. So now, as Alexander moves forward, he creates a process of what's called Hellenization. All that says is that Greek culture permeates the known world. Almost everyone speaks now a common language that's centered around theological thought. So we have two aspects. We have religious freedom and a common language based around philosophy. This is important because no other language in history conveys theological thought the same way the Greek language does. You may come close, there's some arguments there, but it is definitely centered around carrying a message forward. During this, this period, Jews continue to spread throughout the empire. One of the things that we start to see for the first time in history is the phrase God-fearer. A God-fearer is a non-Jew who starts to understand or believe in Scripture. So what does this tell us? What are they believing in? A future Messiah. The word is starting to spread. People are starting to get the message. And we're not even at the birth of Jesus yet. In 63 B.C., Pompey, a Roman general, will conquer Jerusalem. Again, Rome is even more proficient at warfare than the Greeks. 
One of the things that made them so proficient in warfare was the fact that they could move their legions quickly across the empire and concentrate a massive number of force on a given people and conquer them very quickly. The way they moved those troops was by roads. The roads were extremely proficient. In fact, you may have heard the saying, all roads lead to Rome. Again, we've talked about these four periods, and you're saying, well, great. Well, how does this relate to Nebuchadnezzar? He didn't know about these roads. He didn't know about a common language. Well, again, hindsight's 2020. I don't believe Nebuchadnezzar understand the full aspects of his dream. I don't even think Daniel fully understood what it was for. But Scripture wasn't simply written for them. Scripture was written for all of us so God can illustrate his sovereignty or, human con- or divine control of all of history. When Paul talked to the Galatians about the fullness of time, he was pointing to four key aspects, and this is what I want you to hold on to today. First, the Babylonian captivity caused the Jewish message to spread throughout the known world. As they created synagogues, people all around the world would have access to Old Testament scripture and understand the promise that God had made not only to the Hebrew people, but the message of salvation that was contained in that. Second, the Persian Empire instituted some degree of religious freedom so that people could share the message of Jesus without being criminalized, at least initially. They could spread that message and people would say, okay, it's a, it's a theological thought that we're willing to hear. Third, the Greeks provided a common language centered around theological thought would allow people to not only communicate the fulfillment of the Messiah in Jesus Christ, but also the mysteries that were contained in Scripture to allow us to understand how our relationship could progress with Jesus or with God for the next 2,000 years. Fourth, that message would no longer take hundreds of years to reach one side of the empire or the other. We know from archaeology that information is being shared amongst cultures easily 2,300 years before Christ. We know that's being shared from the Russian steppes all the way to China. We can track this through chariot technology, horse technology, even something as simple as a saddle. But sometimes it would take decades. Now it will take weeks, maybe months. And this is the fullness of time that Paul speaks of. When Jesus Christ is born, when he goes to the cross and dies for the sins of anybody who will place their faith in him, and when he's resurrected, that news not only spreads, it spreads to synagogues. It spreads to God-fearers. It spreads quickly in a language that they can clearly communicate it to others. And they can spread that throughout the whole known world. God had prepared history based on a dream that had happened over 500 years before for Jesus Christ to come back or Jesus Christ to come, excuse me, in the fullness of time. So as we celebrate the Advent tonight, and we look forward to the return of Christ, and I want it to come now. If it comes an hour from now and I don't give a sermon at Hazlitt, I'm okay with that. If it comes tomorrow, I'm perfectly fine. I don't know when it will happen. But as we grow impatient, we need to remember that only God is perfect in his timing. In fact, Peter writes about this. It says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That repentance is a turning to realize you're not accomplishing salvation on your own. You're not getting to heaven on your own. You change your mind and realize, I have to place my faith in Jesus. 
And as much as I want him to come back for me, there are thousands, hundreds of thousands throughout the world who have never heard this salvific message. And just as the Jews were supposed to carry that message forward, so too are Christians today supposed to carry that message forward in any means necessary to let people know the hope and joy of salvation. Paul speaks of the fullness of time and Jesus' return in Ephesians. In fact, he uses that same word, pleroma. In Ephesians 1.10, it says, With a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is a summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth, in him. Just as he fulfilled the Nebuchadnezzar's dream of those empires, just as Jesus was born in Bethlehem, he will return for us. We can rest assured that it will happen in the perfect of time. The one thing I would ask you today is we look forward, and I want us to celebrate, and I'll be here tonight. I love candlelight services. But take a moment and pray for all those who are entering church today that it may be one of two times they enter a church all year long. For some of them, it may be the first time they've ever heard the gospel message. Pray that they come to know the joy of Christ's first advent. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this morning. We are grateful for the opportunity to not only have salvation in you, but the hope, encouragement, and joy that though time seems as though it's desperate, our greater hope is in you, and you are in control of all of history. Give us the courage and fortitude to carry your message forward, to present it to people knowing that they can experience the same hope that we have in you. Help us to honor and glorify you and worship you not only in the rest of this service, but tonight as well. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.